Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Bloomberg Audio Studios. Podcasts, radio, news. This is Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney. The real app performance has been the U.S. corporate high yield. Are the companies lean enough? Have they trimmed all the fat? The semiconductor business is a really cyclical business. Breaking market headlines and corporate news from across the globe. Do investors like the M&A that we've seen? These are two big time blue chip companies. The window between the peak and cut changing super fast. Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney. On Bloomberg Radio. On today's Bloomberg Intelligence Show, we dig inside the big business stories impacting Wall Street and the global markets. Each and every week, we provide in-depth research and data on some of the 2,000 companies and 130 industries our analysts cover worldwide. Today, we'll look at why Tesla staff are said to be bracing for potential job cuts. Plus, we'll discuss why war in the Middle East is hurting McDonald's sales. But first, we dive into Walt Disney. Earlier in the week, the company reported better-than-expected earnings for its fiscal first quarter and issued an upbeat profit outlook for the year. For more on all of this, we are joined by Geetha Ranganathan, Bloomberg Intelligence Analyst on U.S. Media, and we asked her why there is reason for optimism at the company. Disney is definitely back, back with a bang. One of the big pain points with Disney has really been the lack of streaming profitability, but now there seems to be a, a clear path to the, to the streaming business kind of getting to that profitability metric. So we saw the losses come in way below expectations. It was 65% below what people were projecting. They're still kind of guiding to, you know, hitting profitability by the September quarter, but, but most people I think on the street expect it to happen much, much sooner. And then Hugh Johnston, who is the new CFO, and this was his first call with Disney, basically said that, look, to or, or expect double digit operating margins in the streaming business. And I think that was something that was really, really powerful mm. because we know that, you know, the, the number that we're all chasing is that 20% operating margin where, you know, Netflix has been. I think the, the one area that we kind of still need clarity is how all of this, the streaming bundles are going to work. So it, it's really good to see them kind of be proactive and, and go out with their own solution. So they have that uh, sports super app that's coming out a little bit later this year in conjunction with Fox and Warner Brothers. They have their own ESPN Plus standalone app. Again, a little bit of, uh, you know, we're not really sure whether those are necessarily going to cannibalize each other. I don't think so. I think really Disney, what they're trying to do here is kind of create this, this super bundle because they, they know that, you know, content bundling works uh, and everybody's kind of looking. Aggregation is the holy grail. And I think Disney wants to be at the forefront of it. But, but definitely we need a little bit more kind of clarity, at least around like what the financial value creation is going to be. How about the theme park business? That seems to continue to be a really solid business for them. And I know they, you know, they announced several months ago that they're really stepping up their investment in their theme parks and their cruises and all that kind of stuff. How did that business do? Very, very well. So again, operating 
income was uh, for the quarter was well above $3 billion. That was again above what the street was expecting. And really what we're seeing is a lot of momentum at the international parks. So they opened, you know, they've opened so many new attractions in their uh, overseas properties. You have a new frozen land in Hong Kong. You have the new Zootopia uh, attraction in, in Shanghai. And both of those are doing really, really well for the company. They, and that has really enabled them to take, you know, implement all of these price increases. So international parks really kind of doing extremely well domestically. There's a little bit of pressure from wage inflation. There's a little bit of pressure from, you know, tough comps from like the Walt Disney World 50th anniversary celebration. But again, just transient parks are really set up very, very well. Uh, and you mentioned the $60 billion investment. Now, 70% of that CapEx is going to be towards new attractions. So this is really going to be a major, major profit driver for them going forward. Geetha, there was a journal article that I just felt like helped someone like me who's not seeped in Disney like you guys understand how they're just seeping in to all the Americana that's out there. They said Taylor Swift, football, and Fortnite. But like <laughs> anywhere that you will want to be or listen to or watch, Disney will be there. What did you make of the Fortnite investment? super smart move by them right it's so strategic it's so smart and it's still a kind of not a huge investment 1.5 billion gives them some stake gives them some skin in the game and there's a lot of upside not too much downside so i think a really good way for them and and remember uh, alex they've had this kind of really checkered past when it comes to video games it's not that they haven't been there they were in the publishing business didn't really work out for them they exited that business in 2016 started licensing out a lot of their content but you know licensing you're still kind of this passive participant and they really need to be there. They need to be an active participant in the video gaming industry. There's so much overlap between all of the audiences that go to the, you know, the Disney parks and the people who are gaming, right? It's all these youngsters and, and they really want to be there. And this is a great way for them to do it. What are they saying about their theatrical business? You know, the, the content, the studio has not really been the blockbuster that it was. We've had a whole string of misfires over the past few months. But I think what Bob Iger was saying is they are in the process of rebuilding. That whole content pipeline is refilling. They're having this really smart move here with this new Taylor Swift movie coming out on, on March 15th. And then they, they spoke about, you know, having this new Moana movie. It, this was originally going to be a series on Disney+. Plus. It's, it's now going to be a theatrical, a full-blown theatrical release. And again, we're prepping for 2026, really, which is going to be the biggest year for the box office uh, ever since the pandemic. And a lot of that will be Disney kind of driving the slate, right? With You have the whole Star Wars coming back with Mandalorian and Grogu. You have a whole set of Marvel releases. So it's going to be really interesting as we kind of build to that. So again, nothing really major in 2024, maybe other than, you know, kind of the Deadpool movie. But we're, we're kind of building okay. towards a much stronger slate I'm sorry. in 25, 26. Nothing big coming except for the Deadpool <laughs> Excuse me. I've been waiting for this movie for years. Deadpool 3? <laughs> You're a big fan of the franchise. Definitely not my audience that I'm talking to right now. Um, <laughs> this is the third one. Having Wolverine make a little uh, cameo. Whatever. Anyway, it's going to be awesome. <laughs> Paul, what do you make of like how fast Disney was able to move? Well, I, I, a lot of people tell you they didn't move fast enough, but it's. I think That's what Bob I. Bob Iger came in. I mean. Yeah, yeah, and it's. But the stock's been kind of dead money for a while, and and, and Geetha well knows here. It's just a question of. When can we get a sense of when those streaming losses are going to be in the rearview mirror? And, and Keith, you know, Bob Iger surprised us, you know, I guess a, a year or so ago when he said some of these assets might be for sale, like the ABC network, some of the cable networks. Any update on that? Yes, we did have him kind of say everything's up for sale. And then he kind of walked back all of that. It's kind of starting to make sense because they're obviously taking all that content. 
they're putting it now on the super app. So it, it makes sense for them to still kind of hold on to their linear TV assets because they still do have very valuable sports rights on there. So I think they're kind of aiming for this bigger kind of grander strategy. I don't necessarily think that they're looking to sell any of their linear TV networks right now. Our thanks to Geetha Ranganathan, Bloomberg Intelligence Analyst on U.S. Media. We turn now to the financial services sector. This week, UBS reported a fourth quarter net loss, citing higher expenses. The bank also announced it will buy back up to $1 billion in shares this year. And this comes as UBS seeks to keep investors focused on the upside of its complex integration of Credit Suisse. For more on this, we were joined by Allison Williams, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Analyst, Global Banks and Asset Managers. I asked her what her key takeaways were from this week's earnings. Investors got as much as they could. They may have wanted a bit more. The one negative thing for the outlook is that 2024 estimates are likely going to come down a little bit because, um, you know, the returns are going to be lower. But that's because I think UBS is trying to be aggressive in, um, you know, pulling forward those costs. So they did upsize the costs on a gross basis, but they're going to invest those. So not falling to the bottom line. So. Um, perhaps some disappointment there. They did reiterate their sort of three-year target. They gave a longer-term target that was uh, in line with the high end before Credit Suisse. So I think those were all positive. The buybacks also a little bit better than expected. The big positive news was 27% um, increase in dividend. Also, fourth quarter, you know, not so much great things going on there. So the, the miss was on costs. Their adjusted costs fell. Their integration costs or the restructuring costs were much bigger than expected. The wealth flows moderated a little bit and the investment bank lost money. Allison, what is the new UBS here post Credit Suisse? And full disclosure, I'm a client of UBS. I used to work at Credit Suisse, so I'm all over the Swiss stuff here. But what's where does UBS want to be now that they've acquired Credit Suisse? What are their ambitions vis-a-vis -vis a, a global financial institution? So I don't think that the big picture strategy has changed much for them, right? So they their focus is on wealth. You know, they're the premier global wealth manager. They added some assets. They added some relationships with Credit Suisse. In the investment bank, um, again, they're still focused on equities. So even though profit disappointed revenue came in about in line, so that's, that's a positive thing on the equities trading side of things. They did add, you know, some incremental ads there were some numbers around the uh, traders the bloomberg news reported we obviously look at uh, the top line of revenue they kept the m a and the research areas were the areas that they added to and those areas did pretty well in the quarter so what else do you need to hear to get more confidence in in all of this we just like a kind of hold and wait for two more years basically i think it is like a show me right so i think mm -hmm. it's going to be a step by step so Armadi, as, as you know, said that, you know, they might sacrifice a little bit of revenue because they are focused on profitability. They're focused on doing things right. So again, like those are the types of things that you have to have confidence. He has done a big turnaround at UBS before, but I think that it is the kind of thing where it's like quarter by quarter investors have to start to see, you know, some support for these estimates. Another target they put up was $100 billion per year for the next two years in net new wealth assets. So I think that's a, a pretty good target. Um, but again, we saw some slowing in the fourth quarter. Some of that was mandates leaving with Credit Suisse relationship managers. Still pretty stable, but I think investors will want to see, you know, more. So, you know, over the next few quarters, UBS delivering on its plans. So Allison, just, I mean, you cover everything, the all the global big investment banks, commercial banks here. Is the 
global bank is that just left to the Morgan Stanleys, the Goldman Sachs's, or whatever? It doesn't seem like anybody in Asia, anybody in Europe can compete against the JP Morgans of the world. So, Paul, it's, I mean, it's really been over the last decade, you know, ever since you left the business, but <laughs> exactly. over, it was Paul. It was over all the Paul. last decade, you know, the US bank just, uh, fought, you know, really making those market share gains. Credit Suisse was, is sort of the latest to, provide some gains to those U.S. players, if, if you will. Keep in mind that the sale from UBS follows them exiting prime brokerage. Uh, before Credit Suisse, we had Deutsche Bank, who also exited prime brokerage. They shed parts of their fixed income business. If we went back to several years prior, there was a lot of the European players getting out of FIC. And, you know, keep in mind, it is a scale business. And I think where banks like JP Morgan have been winning, and in fact, Goldman Sachs, who has gained the most market share over the last several years, are that they are investing in technology that helps them get better revenue, that helps them have more money to invest. And so it's really that virtuous cycle that some of those big US banks have been enjoying. Thanks to Allison Williams, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Analyst for Global Banks. Coming up, we're going to break down earnings from Caterpillar, one of the world's largest manufacturers of heavy machinery. You're listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence via BIGO on the terminal. I'm Paul Sweeney. And I'm Alex Steele, and this is Bloomberg. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube. Let's turn now to Tesla. So Tesla staff are said to be bracing for potential job cuts. Now, we're told managers were asked whether each of their employees' positions is critical. We were joined this week by Steve Mann, Bloomberg Intelligence Global Autos and Industry Research Analyst, we first asked for his take on the potential job cuts. Job cuts are never good for the employees, but uh, I think the investors will probably look at it positively because the stock's been down like 12% since their last earnings call and 30% year to date. And, and that's all because, you know, slowing EV sales, price cuts. So the company needs to do something to address some of the short-term uh, challenges they're facing. So uh, when I see news like this, it's, it really makes me think, Steve, that maybe they see something fundamental in their business such that they have to look at a big fixed cost like people. Um, yeah. What's the company saying these days about where they see, well, I guess, demand? Well, that's a good question. I think you got two questions there. First of all, fundamentally, uh, you know, they've done a lot of price cutting you know, in their operations, in the administrative side of things, in their manufacturing. They plucked out the, all the low-hanging fruits. There's not much to cut anymore other than looking at their human resources. And that's what they're doing at this time. Now, obviously, you know, you don't want to cut, but I think they have to. If you look at Ford's earnings call, uh, the market is really brutal. Mm -hmm. um, they've, uh, the margins was down, like, was at negative 98% for Ford's EV business. That's worse than their third quarter. So from that, you can see the whole entire EV market is still facing, you know, yeah. price cuts, uh, slower demand. And that's, you know, I think that's what Tesla is trying to address 
for 2024. Hey Steve, do we uh, have an idea of when the trough might happen for EVs? When we is it just going to take cheaper ones, or is it going to be actually more hybrid and that trough be really pushed out? I think hybrid is a good kind of uh, fill-in between now and when you know EVs can take off. Our view is actually you know around 2026. Because that's when prices, cost of manufacturing EVs will come down with localization of battery production, more EV models out there. And everyone, every automaker right now is talking about the second generation of EV vehicles, the third generation of EV vehicles. They're actually designed on a very different platform than the ICE vehicles, the internal combustion engine vehicles that is supposed to streamline production, cut parts, cut the number of parts, and hopefully drive costs down to make it more affordable for the consumers. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. So, so it's a 26 story. Will the charging infrastructure also be a 26 story? Well, uh, no, there are some spending uh, at the moment to increase uh, charging infrastructure. I mean, that's another bottleneck that the industry is facing. I think, uh, you know, out in the West Coast, out in the East Coast, charging infrastructure are not of a big concern, but Central America is. So that's where the focus is, I think, in the next couple of years to really build up the charging infrastructure uh, in that part of the country. How many charging units do you have at the Princeton campus at Bloomberg right now? Oh, it's it's interesting. If you go out to the parking lot here, you you, you think it's a Tesla dealership out here. <laughs> uh, there's probably, you know, fifty, wow. you know, forty to fifty Do people charging have stations. the cars. Like, are the Teslas actually being plugged in or EVs? Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. yeah. You'll see mostly Tesla. You'll see a couple of Volkswagen, a couple of Volvos. But because when yeah, I was that's at, why it's, when I was at yeah. the Princeton campus, Steve, you know, I guess I haven't been there in, since before the pandemic. Five, let's call it five years. Five years ago, we had two. Now you're telling yeah. me we have 50. That yeah. is a good barometer, I think. Now, I think Bloomberg is usually on the cutting edge of this mm-hmm. stuff, but still interesting. Yeah, and I wonder, like, did you get the idea that the charging was there, therefore you brought the EVs? Or it's just a clientele ah. that has the EVs? Unfair question, uh, but, like, what do you that's, think? That's a good question. It's all about the cost of ownership. 
you're right, Alex. Having the charging stations here make it convenient for people to charge and really cut their you know, monthly costs, right? There's no fuel costs anymore with the EVs. Our thanks to Steve Mann, Bloomberg Intelligence Global Auto Analyst. Now we look at Caterpillar, one of my faves, one of the world's largest manufacturers of heavy machinery. And then earlier in the week, the company reported higher fourth quarter sales in its energy and transportation business. For more, we spoke with Chris Cialino, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior U.S. Machinery Analyst. We first asked Chris for his key takeaways from the earnings results. It was a real solid print, um, despite the fact that we continue to see these really cautionary signs out there of slowing demand. Four key results, you know, broadly exceeded not only our expectations, but I think CAT's internal expectations as well. Uh, pricing continues to surprise to the upside. The margin performance was quite good, particularly in their energy and transportation business. Retail sales to end users um, continued to hold up reasonably well. Orders came in better than we anticipated, and the cash generation of the business, you know, remains very strong. So there's a lot of positives to take away from the report, and I think this probably dispels some of those, you know, concerns over a more pronounced or near-term cyclical downturn, at least for the time being, as it appears, you know, 2024 is really shaping up to be a little bit maybe more resilient than we had anticipated going into the print. Uh, that being said, you know, we still think there there remains risk, and it, it's mostly to the downside moving forward here. Um, and we're really kind of cautious on the sustainability of this performance, especially as the, the macro backdrop um, begins to soften. So what's the company saying about their outlook? And I guess my question, A, what's the company saying? And B, what's their lead time on? Like, can they, how far out can they see in terms of their, their orders and things like that? Yeah, so they're looking at 2024 as kind of being more of a, a flattish type um, top line environment. Caterpillar is notorious for not giving uh, much on the guidance, but they're kind of suggesting that top line will be relatively flattish. Um, volumes will be down next year. So this is going to be more of a pricing story, and particularly in the first half of the year as we get some of those carryover pricing benefits. So and I suspect margins will come under some pressure and we could see some modest contract action um, on the earnings line as well. In terms of the backlog and the visibility, um, it's above average. The backlog mm -hmm. continues to be uh, you know, remarkably strong. We have roughly $27.5 billion in the backlog. I think one of the surprises of this report to us was orders. Orders, implied orders only came down about 4%. So mm -hmm. we saw the decline in the order rate moderate. So I think that's a, another positive sign that you know, we're not looking at this type of draconian type scenario for 2024. So explain this one to me. What about the China factor? Because air products, their chemicals business in China did terribly, and that's why the stock is down so much. I appreciate their different industries, but still, CAT is very levered to China also. What did we learn about that? Nothing incremental, right? Hmm. So Caterpillar, um, China for Caterpillars, Historically, it's been kind of in that 5 to 10% of revenues. 2023, this past year, we were below 5%. Um, they're telling us that they don't anticipate much uh, change in 2024. But if you're if you're a cat bull, I think that's one of the catalysts that you could potentially look at is that if, we, if or when we do get this China recovery, that would certainly uh, bode well for cat. Hey, Chris, I know investors in these types of stocks, these industrial stocks, they're used to cycles and they're probably saying, but God, we have to have a down cycle coming up here. But there's a lot of infrastructure work out there, stimulus coming out of the US government, out of the pandemic. Isn't this gonna make this cycle different? Like it's gonna be longer up for mm -hmm. these companies? 
Yeah, I mean, we, we hear that this cycle is different almost all the time, right? <laughs> I'm a little bit more in the skeptic camp. Um, listen, North America was was tremendous this, this past quarter and this year. Um, I think it was the only region with positive growth on the top line. We saw 11% growth here in North America. A lot of that is largely driven by non-residential and infrastructure-related spending. So it's certainly been a tailwind, and I do suspect that still has some longevity to it here over the next few years. But there's a number of cyclical factors, to your point, at play here. And historically, this stock, when the backlog starts to come down, when orders inflect, that's not a, a, an encouraging sign for, for future performance. But we also have lots of stuff like the IRA, we had the semiconductor bill, we have uh, the industrial act sort of reshoring, all that stuff. We have learned from industrials that booking those, getting benefits from those uh, pieces of legislation takes a lot longer than the market was expecting. Like just in the CHIPS Act, maybe we're seeing some stuff happening and even that's getting pushed out like we saw with Intel. What is Caterpillar saying about that visibility? Yeah, so I think longer term, there is certainly an opportunity, particularly what they've kind of deemed this energy transition to, you know, alternative fuels or electrification. There is going to be demand for mined commodities, and they anticipate that this shift will increase their addressable market. So no doubt, we do think there is a longer term opportunity here. We think it's probably still many years out before you start seeing you know, more tangible yeah. financial impact from some of these. Infrastructure bill is the, is the more near term impact that we've seen and the results this far. So we, we think that's probably still a little bit longer down the road and, and you know, somewhat difficult to quantify at this juncture. So, Chris, you follow all these big industrial companies in addition to CAT. I mean, you know, Oshkosh, Cummins, you know, Volvo, Packard. What are those big companies that are so skewed and so exposed to kind of the industrial side of the economy? What are they kind of telling you these days? Yeah, so if you, if you think about all the machinery verticals, we were essentially at peak cycle in 2023. Almost all those markets, we expect volumes to be down in 24, some holding up better than others. But I think one of the things that we continue to hear is that this downturn looks a little bit more modest and short-lived than what we have seen historically. I might say the one caveat to that being on the ag side as we continue to see crop prices and farmer incomes under pressure. But at least at this point, you know, we see on the commercial vehicle side being a little bit more modest. And even on construction equipment, there's a number of offsets to the more traditional cyclical headwinds. So again, not looking at this as some kind of a, a steep or severe downturn. It just seems to be much more modest than what we've become accustomed to. Our thanks to Chris Cialino, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior U.S. Machinery Analyst. All right, coming up on the program, we're going to discuss why war in the Middle East is hurting McDonald's sales. You're listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence via BIGO on the terminal. I'm Paul Sweeney. And I'm Alex Steele. And this is Bloomberg. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. We turn now to the fast food industry. McDonald's sales missed investor expectations in the fourth quarter as growth decelerated. To help recap, we were joined by Michael Halen, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Restaurant and Food Service Analyst. We first asked Michael for his big takeaway from McDonald's earnings results. 
Yeah, it was a weaker quarter than most expected, for sure. Sales growth was was kind of weak. You know, I, I, they, they cited the impact from the Israel-Hamas war, and obviously that hurt results in the Middle East, but also in Muslim countries like Malaysia and also countries like France that have a large uh, Muslim population. It, it may have impacted sales here in the U.S. a bit as well. There's There were some calls to boycott the brand right after the start of the Israel-Hamas war. Um, those kind of went away in December and January, however. So there, there could have been a mild impact in the United States as well. And then in terms of key takeaways from the call, you know, they don't expect their developmental markets where the Middle East is located to improve really until the, the, the war ends. And they cited some consumer weakness in the United States, which they have before, right? But it seems like it may be spreading in terms of, you know, just low-income consumer weakness. You know, it sounds like their customers right now are managing their guest checks. Hey, Mike, I'm just looking at the PGEO function on the Bloomberg Turbo, and I see that roughly 60% of the revenue comes from franchise-operated stores and about 40% from company-operated stores. Hmm. How did they make that decision about what when they go to a particular location, whether to franchise or, or own it? I think a, a big part of it is return on investment, right? So if the returns on the investment are very strong, they typically want to hold on to those stores or develop stores. You know, they'll, they'll do some store development in the United States and in their more established markets, um, but it's going to be a small percentage of what they're doing going forward. You know, most of their growth is going to be, you know, done by their strong franchise partners, particularly in, in China and some of these other very fast growing markets. Talk about the input part of the situation in terms uh, of their costs, in terms of uh, their labor and all that kind of good stuff? Inflation is easing for them this year, but it, it's still probably higher than normal. Cows. They're looking at it's cows, man. Yep. Cows. <laughs> <laughs> That's part of it. Uh, for sure, beef and dairy costs are, are expected to be higher this year. So, But they're looking at a you know, low single-digit commodity inflation in the U United States and abroad. Abroad had, you know, Europe had very sh uh, high inflation last year, and that, that's going to settle down a bit. Labor inflation is going to continue to be higher, uh, and, and a big chunk of, a big part of that here is, you know, uh, in the U.S., you know, they're California, April 1st, puts in the $20 minimum wage for fast food workers. And so that's going to impact some of their stores, primarily their franchisees, however. So they're still seeing, you know, higher inflation than, you know, we had in the 20 teens for sure. Hey, Mike, I look at this stock and, you know, I, I need to pay a 22, 23 times earnings for this stock. What am I really getting? Is it something more than GDP top line growth? What's really the call behind this kind of stock? Yeah, well, with their global growth, they're going to probably grow quicker than, than GDP. You know, what you're buying with a franchise business is, you know, pretty stable and predictable earnings growth, free cash flow growth. There's not a lot of operating leverage in the model, and so they're asset light, and so they can lever the business up and return cash to shareholders pretty aggressively. So it, it's definitely an attractive model, especially one with the, the strong top-line growth like McDonald's has. And, and they, they're also... Most investors can consider them slightly insulated against a recession and slower economic times. And a big part of that is that the is the value that they offer mm -hmm. during the Great Recession. They outperformed the quick service industry pretty Mike, significantly, acquired a lot of market share during that time. And so investors feel some safety investing in McDonald's versus some of the other restaurant chains out there. But Mike, that confuses me with what you said about um, customers watching 
their checks uh, and, and their items and what they're buying. Because you would think if things are hard and people are struggling that you would get more value and people would go to McDonald's. But you were mentioning how, in general, people are watching their money more, so they're not. How does that kind of square? Yeah, so so what we've seen is a lot of traffic deterioration over the last couple of years because price increases have been so aggressive and people's spending is, is being pinched, right? But the thing about quick service, you know, they're in the lower end of the market, right? And so they'll see during an economic slowdown, they'll see higher and middle income consumers kind of fall into their bucket. They'll spend less at higher cost, full service occasions, and they'll visit McDonald's more often, whereas a lot of the low income consumers will kind of fall out of that bucket and and decide to opt for the grocery store more often. So they'll lose some traffic on the low end, but they'll they'll probably gain some with some of the middle and uh, upper income consumers. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. So, Mike, who's really their competition these days? When I was a kid, it was Burger King and Wendy's, but now there's so much more out there. How do you kind of slice it? Yeah, it's the restaurant business, man. It's it's so fragmented. There's competition everywhere, man. You know, to your point, convenience stores, grocery stores, food <laughs> trucks, you name it. Uh, but still, primarily, their biggest competition are are the fast food restaurants that are located closest to them. So, it depends on the market. You know, California Jack in the Box is number two. You know, Jack on the, the East Coast, yeah. <laughs> you know, Burger King is number two in in most markets. I'd say in the United States, Wendy's obviously is a big competitor of theirs. But also, you know, places like Chipotle and Shake Shack are all competing for restaurant dollars with with McDonald's. But, you know, we don't look too closely at market share in this business because it is so fragmented. And I don't really like total addressable market in restaurants because nobody's going to eat at McDonald's three times a day, seven days a week. Thanks to Michael Halen, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Restaurant and Food Service Analyst. All right, let's go next to the luxury industry. Earlier in the week, Estee Lauder said it's cutting as many as 3,000 job positions as part of a broad restructuring plan. Now, the plan is aimed at making the cosmetic giant a more profitable company. And this comes as plummeting sales in Asia have dragged down revenue and profit at Estee Lauder in the past year. For more on all of this, we're joined by Deb Aiken, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Analyst. She covers global luxury goods, home, beauty, and personal care. I first asked her for context of the restructuring plan already in play. 
They've raised 500 to 700 million of cost on a deeper restructure program to bring up to 1.4 billion through 25 and 26, mostly 25 or, or majority 25 weighted so, um, with the expectation. Uh, so that's kind of like 400 million extra on what they were expecting before Deb, in terms of operating profitability. What was the problem that they had to fix by doing that? Like, what, why is it so hard to be Estee Lauder? I thought everyone would pay a million dollars for perfect skin, not talking my book or anything. Right. The big thing over the last couple of years that we've seen, we've always known that Estee Lauder, a very premium product, and it did so well for so many years, but it had very high exposure in Asia. So we ended up a couple of years ago with a stuffed uh, retail, duty-free travel retail uh, area across China and some parts of Asia, which were exacerbated by South Korea also and the issues there with the Daegu shopper. And what we found, and we'd always been saying, you know, their supply side, the way that they organized themselves, the logistics, they didn't have the hubs in place in Asia to do as much as they were doing. So they were caught short or caught overstuffed. So they had far too much in trade and that has taken a long long time to temper down and start to normalize and we should return overall to growth this next quarter and deb let's stay with the china story because i know from talking to you over the years and reading your research the china consumer is just critical for luxury shopping can you give us a sense because i don't when i walk down madison avenue or fifth avenue i see all the european tourists back they're mm -hmm. back in you know in in size not so much with the Chinese. What's going on there? The big thing, we very late in getting visas through the reopening um, of, you know, as we thought from the beginning of last year, reopening of travel. But the view is that travel internationally won't come back until the second half of the year. And we are starting to hear some of those luxury companies saying we're seeing more Chinese, more Asian uh, customers in our stores. Um, back home, there's a lot more spending, flights are fuller. Uh, the surveys that we're doing are saying that they will travel, but a lot of that travel so far has been across Asia. But what's interesting is that not all are created equal. I feel like you can cherry pick a couple of luxury stocks that have been somewhat immune. And I'm just wondering mm -hmm. what those are. And I still like, and, and in the skincare world too, like what is that immune skincare high-end product that doesn't matter? We're all buying it anyway. I think that, you know, there are there's some huge uh, numbers in terms of some of the brands within the Estee Lauder portfolio doing extremely well, lots of the brands up double digit, but it's that trade that draws down. When you look at the Europe number for, uh, for Estee Lauder, that's where they stock travel retail, that's where it sits in its P&L and it's down minus 14. But actually Europe underlying is flat and it's the same for the North American market. Within that, there are brands like The Ordinary and La Mer and several of the, the higher end brands doing very, very well up double digit. And it's the same across if I think about the way that actually luxury and, you know, L'Oreal aside, L'Oreal is doing phenomenally well with a high base of its product in what it classes as L'Oreal looks. But let's go to some of the luxury companies and the way that LVMH and others are building sizable scale in uh, perfume and cosmetics. Mm. Uh, that's for growth of six to eight percent per year and very strong margin. Um, so there are a lot of brands out there doing very, very well. Um, but in particular, 
what has happened is and and, and stock picking cherry picking um it's about the brands who've had the portfolio that hasn't had so much asia travel retail or where it's really been able to manage that because even if i think about lvmh within its selective retailing it housed dfs duty-free stores and sephora and at one point last year they were both down and they've now fully recovered we're starting to see for the us some robust numbers coming through even from that aspirational end across luxury across brands it's getting a little better but it's going to take time how are the luxury stock what's what's kind of the luxury call here i look at the uh, fa function for estee lauder and it looks like for your the fiscal 2025 the june of 25 year the street's looking for a big pickup in revenue and, and profitability for estee lauder what's behind that that's that's all about that inventory the inventory and to put that inventory in Asia into context, it's dragged down skincare in this quarter, organic sales minus 10%. It's dragged down Europe to minus 14, where underlying Europe was flat because it stores that travel retail. So it's about that inventory normalizing, and they're saying that that has happened right now at the end of 2Q. So we head into 3Q with normalized level. And so therefore, if that is the case and it's better managed, we should start to see double-digit growth coming from there. And if we were looking underlying without that area, then we saw mid-single-digit growth. So that's what that's about. And then also on top of this new restructuring program and with some of those benefits to come through 25, we've been playing around on MODL on the calculator. And what we see there is around an expectation of 12 to 13% uplift to that 2025 operating profit to hopefully come through on consensus. Our thanks to Deborah Aiken, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Analyst, Global Luxury Goods, Home, Beauty, and Personal Care. That's this week's edition of Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. And remember, you can access Bloomberg Intelligence through the I Go on the Terminal. I'm Alex Steele. And I'm Paul Sweeney. Stay with us. Today's top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now. This is the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast, available on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live each weekday, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern, on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also watch us live every weekday on YouTube and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.